Okay, live. Here we are. Oh, man. So, uh, first of all, uh, still no other theme music. I guess I could do the regular writer chat theme music. Probably will in a second so I can get a mouthful of tea in my face. But uh, I have two people I want to shout out. First of all, uh, thank you sincerely, sincerely to the person who sent root beer and vanilla ice cream to the house. Um, You're fucking rad. It's perfect. Uh, It's in the freezer. I'm pumped for it. Uh, Thank you. You've made my day. You you really made my day. Uh, Second of all, thank you to every single one of you who reached out to ask me how the air conditioning was, if I was ready for the heat, if uh, I needed anything, if, if it was better than it was last year. It's all good. We're all fixed. It's working. It's on right now. That's why there's no like major fan blaring into the microphone. Uh, it's very comfy in here, and I'm thrilled. Uh, one more announcement, and then we'll get down to business. Uh, you ever have one of those moments where you've been planning for a thing all day, and then you get started with it, and you sit down and turn the microphone on, and you go completely blank? Uh, that just happened to me like seconds ago. So I'm winging this. Oh, boy, howdy. Here we go. Here we go. Uh, we're just going to do the... Gosh, let's just do last night's theme music again. Here we go. All right. Just remember what I've taught you. I really should make other theme music. So here's that. There's that. Wait, I still have to press a button. Why do I have to press a button? Sorry, this is this has just become a thing now. Hang on, let's press a button and then we'll get started. Boom, button pressed. And hi, hello, welcome back. Uh, yeah, I know I was here last night. I'm here again. I hope you're doing well uh, wherever you are, whomever you are, however you are. I hope it's going well. Um, if you have no idea what this is, if this is totally foreign to you, uh, hi, I'm John. I'm going to help you write better. And tonight, like it says on the screen, uh, we're talking about building better scares, tension, and overall just horror stuff about building horror, about what it takes to write effective horror. Um, maybe kind of sort of sneak in a little bit of publishing, you know, how to publish horror and market horror. But fundamentally, this is a teaching thing. We're going to learn about the nuts and the bolts more so than the marketing. The marketing can come later. And if you have questions about the marketing, um, I will make sure to tell you where you can go to get answers for those questions by the end of the stream. But uh, tonight is functionally about writing and producing it so that marketing it, whatever it is you're writing, becomes super, super easy if you've written it effectively in the first place. So, yeah, let's. Um, there's a lot to cover. There's a lot of detail here. And as I said in the intro pre-music, my brain went completely blank, completely blank, like 
two minutes after uh like i i sat down here so i'm kind of i've lost my intro i've lost my rehearsal so we're just going to improv jazz this a bit until i can get back on some footing this should be pretty good um this is detailed let's go here we go so let's define some horror first as we always do when we're learning or talking about a genre let's define horror horror is a genre of fiction intended to do three things scare disturb or frighten it is functionally built to deliver that kind of and that level of emotional reaction it's gonna do other things as well but primarily it's built to scare disturb and frighten it has so many subgenres, like a ridiculous number of subgenres. you've probably heard of a couple psychological horror supernatural horror uh, gothic horror are your common ones, but you can also get really obscure ones like weird West horror or romantic horror, lowercase r, capital R romantic horror, um, family horror, generational horror, all these different little subsets that basically mean it is some kind of story that is intended to scare, disturb, or frighten lensed through the tools or pieces of another genre. All of this stuff is part of speculative fiction. I want to make sure that it's very clear that I'm saying this because I know there is one person who uh, will find me later on social media and tell me I have messed up the definition of speculative fiction. And, hey, man, look, I'm getting it right. It's all part of speculative fiction. There are loads of genres and subgenres here underneath the horror umbrella. We are going to just kind of label it all horror and when we want to spin off because there's a question or we want to spin off because there's something specific to talk about or say, then we'll do that on an individual case-by-case basis. There is really no way there is enough time or I have enough voice to sit down and walk through every single horror genre. Also, it's worth pointing out that uh, nobody agrees on a universal definition or it's universal construction. And we're not even talking like cultural differences, how, for instance, Asian horror is different than African horror, which is different than, you know, American or European horror. It's not even that. It's a matter of what is horror? Is scare, disturb, or frighten really the functional, emotional core of horror? Or is it more about shock? Or is it more about gore? Or is it more about sensationalism? Nobody agrees really on its definition. And because its definition is so sort of like, I know it when I see it, as opposed to being something concrete, uh, we also don't universally agree on its construction, that it has to have certain things in a certain order, or it has to have certain things at all independent of the order, or it can just be, uh, you know, anything in any order, as long as at some point something leaps out of the shadows, or something absurd like that. There's so much space and so much room here that I can't give you more of a concrete, this is definitely horror definition, other than it's fiction designed to scare, disturb, or frighten. I wish there was more concrete stuff. I wish it was way more like nuts and bolts and fiddly the way something like detective fiction is. But horror is pretty broad. And because it's broad, people disagree as to what makes good horror versus what makes bad horror. They disagree about what is horror versus what is not. And and all those fights and all that stuff does not 
interest me in the least. In fact, I think it's to the detriment of the genre and the detriment of horror fans as a whole collective, whether we're talking about people who really love zombie movies or people who really think Christopher Lee was the best Dracula or people who don't like the ring or whatever group of people you want to talk about in whatever way, shape or form. I think it's to everybody's detriment when there's so much arguing and dissension and sort of like digging your heels in and saying, no, my kind of horror is horror. And all you people are just posers. I I think especially for horror, um, very little is gained in that. So I'm not going to engage in it. I can tell you my personal experience. I tend to not like horror because I'm sensitive. Uh, I get, I'm anxious to begin with. I get nervous very easily and, and I don't want to like consume media that's supposed to relax me. And I don't, I don't want to be scared. Like I'm a grown ass man, but I will sleep with the lights on if I have to. And I, I try not to engage with a lot of horror because uh, jump scares get me. Ever, and I understand you can call me a name. You can make fun of me. Go ahead. I've heard it my entire life. But the the point of this is uh, horror is not my thing. So I'm looking at this from the outside looking in. Uh, I can talk to its strengths. I can talk to its constructions. But in terms of like, John, are you a horror guy? No, super not a horror guy. Super not a horror guy. There's very little horror I like. Uh, I like some slasher fiction. I like some slasher films. Uh, I like some pretty good staple horror that everybody can identify as like definite like good movie horror. But even then, I don't like all of it. There are some scenes I will totally cover my eyes as a grown man. But uh, by and large, I don't go out of my way to be like, I like horror because I don't. It's just not my thing. But that's okay. If it's your thing, that's awesome, and I want you to enjoy it. In fact, I want you to enjoy this and learn something from this because I want you to be able to go produce your own stuff. I want you to be able to go write you know, a zombie story. I want you to be able to add horror to your fantasy. I want you to be able to tell you know, scary, spooky ghost stories. I want you to know how to make this stuff because that's important. I think everybody's toolbox should be full of as diverse a tool set as possible and that you should be as well equipped as possible to tell whatever kind of stories you want to tell in whatever kind of way. So that said, let's talk about the ingredients for horror. Just the universal things that I think, because remember the definition is real variable, but here are the things I think you need in order to build horror of any kind. I've identified six and I want to talk about each one of them. I want to talk about how you establish it, what you can do with it, how it works, how it doesn't work, when it gets, you know, abused or when it gets misused, how to fix it if it goes off the rails, that kind of stuff. I want to go through each one of these things. So what's first? Our first prime, what's called a primary ingredient or a primary component, that's the stuff that's more important than anything else, is tension. And tension is pressure between two or more elements that you're developing in your writing. It's a relationship between these two elements that feels a need or, or seems to suggest a need for resolution. It, it's some kind of dynamic that doesn't exactly mesh evenly. And because we're, we're, we're kind of uncomfortable in this relationship, that need for resolution increases our tension. We get more tense the longer we go in delaying that resolution. 
So if we introduce two things like, um, and you'll see tension, tension is not unique to horror by any means. If you have like the mean girl click and then a new kid at school, that tension between them is whether or not they'll make fun of the new girl or the tension in between two people in a relationship is uh, typically in a horror movie. Will, will they go have sex? One of them, usually the dude is totally trying to get into the other one. Usually a girl. Cause it's a lot of horrors, heteronormative uh, trying to get in her pants. And the tension there in that relationship is, Hey, when are we going to hook up? Tension is usually the fuel and currency most spent and built in horror. If you can develop tension, if you can create these relationships between developed elements, a developed element, by the way, is an element that you say something about. You don't just say like, hey, look, a dog. That's an introduced element. A developed element is where you say something about the dog, where you do more than just establish that it exists. You develop it. You give it some detail, some kind of detail, some amount of detail. When you have these developed elements, you want to create a relationship between them and don't always assume relationships are positive. It's just some kind of connection between one thing and another, whether they're, you know, two arch rivals on a sport on a sports team or whether they are two people competing for the for a third person's affections or whether they are a coworker and a, and two coworkers competing for a job or even if there's no competition maybe it's just a married couple or maybe it's siblings or maybe it's the inheritor of a spooky house because it doesn't always have to be people you just need to take developed elements two or more of them and create a relationship between them that really allows you to manipulate and affect the story. And the longer you go without that resolution, and I'm talking big picture resolution. I don't just mean like they have to do something in a scene. That's obvious. I mean like we have to kill the vampire at the end of the book. If we kill him too soon, it's not so tense. But if we delay that killing, we delay that resolution, we get more tension. That said, if we ever want to let the air out of our balloon if we ever want to make the tension less or or make the weaken our whole story structure frankly we need levity we start cracking jokes we start making quips and balancing those two things balancing the amount of levity because levity does have a positive benefit levity is there so that the reader can catch their breath can recontextualize can kind of wrap their head around something that isn't all awful all the time the balancing act between tension and levity is something that you're going to work on from draft to draft. It's hard to do. One of my favorite examples in horror where sometimes this works and sometimes this doesn't is in Stephen King's it, where all of a sudden I believe it's Richie, the funny kid starts doing a racially insensitive caricature voice. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to repeat it or do it, but it, it's he does it throughout the book. It's probably his like go-to thing and it it's awful and grossly inappropriate and it's weird and it happens generally in and around times where there's some kind of tension, whether they're going to get picked on or beat up or there, there's some kind of cop in the way or there's some obstacle. Like he just jumps into this inappropriate voice and that moment of levity allows us to kind of take a step back from, oh God, there's the murderous evil sewer clown. But at the same time, it's jarring because it's a really inappropriate caricature. 
balancing those two things is always a little wobbly. And it is a great example of that because it wobbles on the way out. Once he's done making in his smart ass comments in the racially insensitive caricature, there's always a line or two of somebody being like, shut up, Richie, or something to that effect to kind of bring us back to the present moment. When there's too much levity or the levity is like Richie and it too, I think it's Richie, too jarring, you always have to have a stabilizing element usually right after it to bring us back because otherwise it's just going to be this strange aside that we jump out to for a couple seconds and struggle to get back on track. Be careful with your levity. Be, it's, it's not that any levity is bad. It's that when you overdo it, because it's not proportional. That's the important thing here. It's not, if we're assigning made up magic numbers to this, if we have eight units of tension, we do not need eight units of levity. There's always going to be a disparity. There's always going to be more tension because it's horror than there should be levity. Cause if there's more levity than anything else, you're writing a comedy and that's not horror. Uh, debatably. I think. But the point is that levity deflates and reduces tension and tension increases when the relationship is developed or continues to develop without resolution. Those, that, that's your engine. That's how this works. Are we adding tension or are we subtracting tension? If we're not adding tension, that's okay. We just have to make sure then we are maintaining tension. Sort of like, are we, are we pedaling our bike to go faster or are we coasting a minute and not pedaling? Eventually, we will coast long enough that we're, we, the bike will either slow down or we have to pedal more. But the pedaling bike analogy is really effective here because it tells us how often we want to kind of give more attention to things. And it requires that expenditure of effort. It requires that expenditure of action. Usually it's action that drives it or a decision or a character doing something. Tension does not spontaneously generate. Tension is an earned generative effect, which means you got to do something. Something has to happen. A character has got to take an action, make a decision, react to something, do something, want to do something, attempt to do something. Something, whatever it is, has to kick off a set of events or activities or responses or some things in order to generate tension. Tension does not spontaneously just pop up. It, it can't because tension is a response or part of a relationship to developed elements and you can't develop an element without doing something to it. Tension is our big fuel source. On we go to ingredient number two, which is expectation. Now, expectation is sort of the flip side of tension. Because as we're building tension, one of the things that gives the reader a sense of tension, in addition to the description and the exposition you're giving, the reader has a set of expectations. They go into the scene, they read the text, they put the mental movie in their imagination, they're seeing things, they have a set of expectations. Maybe this will happen. Maybe they'll run away. Maybe they'll scream. Maybe they'll cry. Maybe the monster will get them. Maybe the lights will go out. Maybe, you know, the clown will start singing a song. Maybe someone will play a kazoo. Maybe there will be chickens. I don't know. The reader has expectations. You want the reader to have expectations. Now, let's be really super clear. This does not mean that the, you are putting the reader on the hook to imagine stuff. I'm not saying you can just say, well, it's a bedroom, and then walk away and never to say anything because the reader has an expectation of what the bedroom looks like. 
expectation is just a strong belief that something will happen or something is a certain way. It does not eliminate your need to describe things. It does not eliminate your need to tell the story. It's just expectation. Your job from the writing side of the fence is to subvert, delay, challenge, or alter that expectation. Sometimes you want to actually deliver what it is, but you don't always only want to deliver on what it is. There are readers out there who are incredibly savvy and they will love to tell other people, oh, I figured it out. I knew what was coming as if that's like valuable, as if that's the point, as if that's a badge of honor or something. My mom does that with murder mysteries. She just knows she, she can spot the killer and then, you know, that's it. She'll just tell you, oh, I figured out who the killer was in, in 10 pages and I kept reading. I don't know why she does that. I, uh, does she want a cookie? Does she want me to tell her like, hey, good job for figuring it out, for reading like, you know, six horror, sorry, six mystery novels a week and you're just deeply in that climate and culture and environment so you just get things? Like, w w who cares? It's good for you. I'm happy for you. But why you got to tell everybody? And that she's not the typical reader. Now, there are going to be horror readers out there who are like, I've seen everything with a vampire in it. So I know vampire movies. I know vampire stories. So when we have this situation where there's like two kids and they're looking for a place to make out and they go into the scary room, I know that about 85% of the time that's where the vampire is. Sure. Great. And maybe, yes, the author liked the idea that the, the two kids go to make out and they get jumped by the vampire. Sure, but maybe not. And that possibility of maybe, maybe not, that subverting, that delaying, that challenging, or delivering that expectation is why a reader, even the most savvy reader who knows all the tropes and all the conventions... That's why we write. We don't necessarily write for them. We don't write so that we can try to like get one over on them. Aha, you didn't see that coming, did you, fucker? That's not what we're here for. We are here to tell our story, to put a movie in the reader's imagination. And sometimes that means we are going to deliver things that they can kind of expect what's coming because they're well-read. And other times we're going to give them something they had no idea was coming. And it's not so much about finding that balance. It's not about some magic formula of things they guessed versus things they didn't. It's about telling your story to the best of your ability, no matter what it is. And it, yeah, if some people guess the whole thing through, well, good for them. They can have an imaginary internet cookie and a big thumbs up and we can all go on about our day. Don't write intentionally, this is especially true with horror writers, don't write trying to subvert everybody just to kind of ward off that idea that, oh man, people are going to get it and it won't be any good. Tell your story. Just tell your story. Play with expectation as you need to, as you can, when you want to. Tension and expectation are two very big deals in horror, when you are looking to make your horror more impactful and give it more oomph, it isn't a matter of just, I'm going to add another scene with the vampire bear or I'm going to put a werewolf here. It's not about just throwing shit into the manuscript. It's about controlling the tension and manipulating the expectation. With me so far, 
everything good. I'm going to get a mouthful of tea, and we're going to go on to the third ingredient. I also realize I didn't say hello to people. Hello, YouTube. Hello, Twitch. Hi, followers, listeners, podcast people. Hi. I forgot to say hello to you. I was on a roll. I apologize. Mouthful of tea, and then we're going to the third expe- the, the third ingredient, okay? I hope you're doing well. I hope you're digging this. Thanks for putting up with my weird graphics. I had to go far and wide to find different, like, horror things, which is so fun for me. I really enjoy staring at horror things. It makes my day better. But that's fine. Okay. Do we want a cup date? Should I just like treat this like a regular Wednesday? Uh, we're drinking a new tea tonight. It's Indian. It's mint. Um, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I got it in. Where did I get this? Chicago It's pretty good. I'm almost done. It's like the last thing of the jar. It's good. It's minty. I could use it. Not in a toothpaste minty way, more like in a ooh mint kind of way because it's summer and it's hot. And I bet if I put some like seltzer in this, it would kind of be a mojito-ish sort of, which I, I miss dearly. But that's neither here nor there. On we go to our third ingredient, which is intensity. And this is an ingredient that I don't see a lot of people talking about when it comes to horror because it comes across, or at least in speaking to a lot of writers, intensity seems to be a thing that has two conditions, either zero or one bajillion. And there's really no need for a middle ground, they say. It's, it's all or nothing. And that's inaccurate. Intensity is a scale. It is a, it is a slider. It is a knob. It is something you can increase and decrease and regular, regularly manipulate. Intensity is the degree, volume, or magnitude of some developed element in your writing, whether that's the violence, whether that's the color of the flowers, whether that's the tension in the scene, whether that's the way some character feels about somebody else, whether it's the volume at which dialogue is delivered, the, the, the amount, the oomph behind whatever that thing is, is intensity. Intensity, for a lot of writers, scales way too hard, way too fast, and they go right to like intensity to shocking intensity like oh man the red wedding i can't believe they totally stabbed that guy but then all of a sudden like there's a tipping point where there's too much shock value there's too much oh my god and it starts to become absurd like okay there you know uh we've stabbed him once no we're gonna stab him like 17 18 22 35 times as if the character wasn't dead after like six or like 17, 18, and 19 weren't enough. We got to go to like the, the next prime number in the 30s. Really? Really? Absurd is just past shock. And absurd generates a level of sort of unreality. And horror isn't necessarily predicated on reality versus unreality. But it starts to you start to get you start to get diminishing returns when your super dangerous supernatural mega killer or your guy in a dress like his mom runs around and like stabs you how many times does he have to stab you not because he's a master surgeon who knows exactly where to swing the knife once because that's just as dull too but like 
more is not always necessarily better. That is a, a lesson in restraint and managing intensity that a lot of newer writers really struggle with because they think it's not enough because they think it's a, it's like, I have to have more to show the reader or the publisher, or I don't know who I got to show somebody that I know what I'm doing, that I'm good enough to write this. So I'm just going to have a lot. You know, it's like talking to a little kid and we're, you're playing on the carpet with toys and all of a sudden like something explodes, but it's not just like one explosion's enough. No, we got to have like 50 explosions. And all of a sudden Michael Bay is here somewhere filming things and, and it's all giant robots all the time. And it just goes to absurd very, very quickly. Be careful with that. Now, intensity is affected by time. The longer something goes at a sustained intensity, the closer you get to that absurdness. Because let's, again, we'll go back to the idea of, you know, somebody dressed like their dead mom stabbing a lady in the shower, like psycho. If we just keep stabbing away and we keep getting the, you know, the, the strings to, to, to bring in the, every stab and we're just stab, 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 stab. After a while, we lose some of that intensity because if we cut away and then cut back to our guy still stabbing her, right? Like if we leave the scene, go somewhere else, and then come back, it loses that intensity. The longer something goes, the less that intensity persists because intensity is generally a shock. It's generally a hit. One thing, one event, intense the Red Wedding does not go on for hours and hours. It's a single scene of some throat slitting and some Lannisters paying their debts and the, everybody dies. Intensity is also weakened when you start overstructuring and overdeveloping. There's a very fine balance here that every writer is going to hit differently. Every writer is going to get it in terms of how they write. Whatever they're writing, both on a draft level and as just their own personal writing style, how I write and how you write, even if we're writing the same scene from the same prompt or whatever, we're going to come at it two different ways. We're two different people with two different set of tools and experiences. It doesn't mean I'm automatically better or you're automatically better. We're just different. But when we start to overstructure, when we start to overdevelop, when we, you know, talk about the stab wounds and the blood and the knife and the lady dress and slash, 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 the more we belabor it, the more we, we, we go into every detail and everything to every degree, the, the more structure it gains and the less intense it feels because it starts to feel very clinical. If I start describing how, you know, the dangerous monster starts like uh, butchering the corpse of the guy, like they attack the school principal and they just start pulling off limbs and, you know, tearing out his guts or whatever. And I start talking about the inches of meat or the, the volume of blood or this, that or the other, because I want you, the reader, to understand that I Googled things a lot and understand human biology. I'm losing the intensity of that monster attack on the character because I've suddenly turned into like a, an anatomy textbook to tell you like, oh no, it's the spleen here. And, and that's not the point of horror. The point of horror isn't to drown us in detail. The point of horror is to affect us emotionally with some amount of detail. And some amount doesn't, isn't synonymous with all. It's just some, please. Okay. I'm going to, Stop here for a second, get another mouthful of tea. I see some more people came in. Hello, everybody. Hi, nice to see you. Please know this. If you have questions, 
If you have things you want to say or things you want to ask, please just ask them. Absolutely, anytime, please. You don't have to wait until the end. I can't see you if you raise your hand. So just in whatever you're viewing this on, just go into the chat, leave a question. I'd be happy to answer it. I'm going to get another mouthful of tea and we're going to go on to ingredient number four. Ready? Okay. Ingredient number four is time. Now, Time plays a very particular role in horror because there's always some level of time in motion in story, but it is most acutely felt in horror because generally horror is built around, and we'll talk about this with a future ingredient, some boundaries. Like, we have to do this as soon as possible. We have to stop the killer before they strike again, or we only have until sunrise, or all of this happens at one night. There's always some amount of time in the way. There's always some contention with time, whether it's, you know, vampires are only out at night, so we're safe during the day or vice versa, or we can only go in pitch darkness, whatever. There's always some level of time and understanding time that affects what it is we're talking about. When you take too much time, and it seems like we can just hopscotch the story. Oh, three months later, two weeks after that, a month after that, it's it's really hard to make these things feel substantial because we're just stretching them out wider and wider apart until they they seem very disconnected. Or when you go the other way and you compress everything down, well, five minutes ago this happened, then two minutes after that, that happened, then 30 seconds ago there was this, and there's no real room to breathe. There's no real room to contextualize things. The impact is also weakened. Although this time, instead of spreading it out to make things feel uh, disconnected, we're compressing everything so we can't really appreciate each individual horror element. If I just start speaking really quickly, all of a sudden, whatever notes you're taking suddenly mush all together because you can't necessarily understand what I'm saying. I compressed it all down in time. And if I start talking kind of slow and whatever, and I start spinning in my chair and we're just kind of spacing out, then we lose another way of sort of organizing our ideas and keeping the reader engaged. So time can affect positively or negatively the expectation by creating anticipation. Anticipation and expectation are partners in this expectation is I think X is going to happen. Anticipation is the feeling or idea that I want X to happen. Even if Y or Z or Q or whatever else happens, anticipation is that, oh, I, I can't wait. When is this happening? It's knowing there's going to be a resolution and the patience or impatience to get it. That's the effect of time. When we control time in horror, it doesn't mean we micromanage it. We're not trying to do this in a way where like we're, we're controlling every second. We don't need to. But we're using time as a factor to further tension or create expectation or give our story a regular set of flow so that we can challenge it or subvert it or maintain it. Time is a critical factor. When you go look at most horror movies, 
time is a very specific thing that comes up. There's often characters with dialogue that will tell you that in a few hours or tonight or by midnight, there's always some kind of casual relationship with time, but it's always brought up at some point or several points to keep the reader aware of sort of the the whole timeline of the story. When horror disconnects from time, and there's no clear sense of the passage of time, or there's no real clear sense of urgency because of time, the horror, no matter how graphic it is, no matter how intense it is, no matter how much it is, feels less material. It feels like it matters less because we don't have this other sort of metric to measure things by. Time really, really matters. On we go. This leads us to stakes. So we're going to talk a lot about stakes because stakes matter in horror. I was either going with a Jaws thing or I was going to find like a hammer horror vampire stakes and make a Buffy the Vampire pun. But I went with Jaws because Jaws has better, clearer stakes. Stakes are the potential risks. It's the danger. It's the consequence. It's most critically, it's the change in the status quo that characters either want to happen or antagonistic characters do not want to have happen. Stakes matter because the stakes help frame the conflict in our horror film or story or TV show or radio drama or whatever piece of creative media we're making. Without stakes, horror is just spectacle. And spectacle gets dull fast because it doesn't have any depth to it. You need stakes. Now, stakes can scale, but it's possible to scale them too much. Example, Batman starts telling a story where it's just about, you know, hey, we got to stop the bad guy. But all of a sudden it's, oh no, the whole Gotham is suddenly at risk. That's overscaling. All of a sudden, spontaneously, randomly, the deal is much too big, much too fast. But the stakes can also underscale. And it seems like it should be, you know, a thing. But really, like, so so what if it only really attacks the people at the high school? Like, it's just the high school. At the end of the day, there's more people in this town. Balancing your stakes is a lot like balancing your expectation. But balancing your stakes requires a connection between the problem, the urgency, the effort, the conflict... And your protagonist, or protagonists, if you have more than one. Connecting the characters to the conflict gives them a sense of stakes that can create urgency, expectation, and tension to help drive horror. If you fuck up stakes, and it's not really clear why the thing is a big deal, the reader is going to care less, because they're not going to get it either. If you go the other way and you make the stakes the biggest thing that everybody's always constantly thinking about, your story's going to come across as far more like dry and overly serious. Like it's, it's very much tucked its shirt in and it's sitting there very politely waiting to be called on. And it's, it's going to lose some of that connectivity. It's going to lose some of that relationship with the reader because it just seems very self-serious. Now, stakes come in two flavors particularly for horror, but this is universally true for all genre. There are known stakes and there are unknown stakes. And the character doing the knowing or the not knowing matters here. 
your character, particularly your protagonist, probably has some idea of some known stakes. Now, maybe they know all the stakes. The vampire comes to town. It's up to me to stop the vampire uh, because the vampire keeps making other vampires and soon they'll be everywhere and, and they'll be unstoppable. Those are the known stakes. And it's totally okay if your protagonist knows all the known stakes. It's completely fine. However, sometimes over the course of the story, it's super awesome to have both known stakes, expectations and problems and things the character knows are the big deal, but also some unknown stakes. For instance, let's suppose that the school administration has been feeding the students um, cursed zombie meat in our YA horror novel. So our known stakes is that we have to stop the lunch lady because she's the one doing the, the food dispensation. Our unknown stakes, though, might be that the principal, who's been our friend for the first five chapters, has signed off on this. And really, our principal is an evil warlock. Unknown stakes allow things to suddenly transform and get bigger or more dangerous or more impactful or more urgent. They allow for more something. And just making that jump from unknown to known, that big discovery beat, if we can tie it all the way back to beat construction, that discovery, that revelation allows our story to take on greater emotional significance and connect our reader even more to it and make them root for the protagonist and make things seem more dangerous, raise the stakes, increase tension, increase expectation, affect time because now all of a sudden we have less, it seems like we have less time to do more things. Unknown stakes are a quantity of stuff we don't know but have to discover. Known stakes are the stuff we know that might never change over the course of the whole thing. And it's okay to have both. It's okay to have just one. It's okay to have some of each. Every story is going to be different depending on what it is we're trying to do. But you do need them. When you don't have stakes, you just kind of get scenes. Stuff happens. And then we all go, "Uh uh-huh, that happened. And then we move on. Stakes help tie things together. Make sense? Shall we go on to the next one? Our sixth ingredient here are boundaries. And boundaries are, well, they're limitations. They are whatever kind of framework we set up for our story so that our story plays within the boundaries. It's trapping people on an island. It's keeping everybody in the hotel. It's uh, everybody's on the speeding train with the killer. It's everybody's on the, you know, everybody here in town. Or it's um, who's ever drinking the punch at the party. There are always going to be boundaries and you need them. Because if there are no boundaries, it's hard to contextualize the horror. For example... Think of any horror movie, The Thing, Halloween, Scream, Jaws. If you suddenly take these stories and eliminate their boundaries, so now we're no longer in a town in in Illinois slash Los Angeles. We're no longer in Antarctica. We are no longer in Amity. And we're suddenly thinking about the, the whole East Coast. 
or or the whole of the of the western hemisphere or something the particular actions of the killer the the shark the monster the whatever seem very small in comparison and we've sort of lost some of that impact we have because now we're busy thinking about like oh shit what happens when this gets to des moines when really we're supposed to be focused on what happens when it's just off the coast in amity your boundaries help develop expectations by increasing danger by increasing stakes by increasing tension you give yourself a framework a box a cage whatever and you use claustrophobia to your advantage to keep things within that box yes i'm i'm physically making a box with my hands in an audio medium you keep the story in that box because it's going to make everything feel more urgent, more intense, more connected, more big, more dire, more fill in the blank. Generally, it is a good idea that once you establish the boundary, you don't have to stop and re-explain it because the characters are already well aware of it. For instance, let's suppose that you are uh, stuck on an island in a rainstorm and the dinosaurs are got, have gotten loose. You would not have characters who are trying to elude the dinosaurs stop and turn to each other and go, oh my God, we're stuck on an island in a rainstorm and the dinosaurs are loose because we know they are. We're in the middle of surviving it. You would not have someone turn to someone else in the middle of a slasher movie and go, golly, this party sure is, you know, great except for all the dying. I hope we are not murdered by the killer at this party because that's a really weird thing that's just sort of better off left unspoken because you don't need to explain it because the characters are going through it. When you explain something, when you belabor a boundary, it makes the boundary weaker because it, it sort of softens and destabilizes the tension, the horror, the urgency. Because instead of a moment where you're telling me all about like, the killer could be in this very room... You're telling me, oh, God, okay, well, you know, like, they better, they got to be somewhere, so we're waiting. You're, you're sort of doing the obvious uncomfortable thing rather than building tension. You're letting the air out of the balloon in the same way that levity decreased our tension. Boundaries matter. They don't need to be over-explained. Once the characters are aware of them or situationally set in them, like, Duh, they know they're stuck on a train. We don't have to have characters stop and tell each other, hey, we're on a train, because they know it. Once you do that, get the boundaries out of the way. Get back to the story. Your story doesn't always have to live full-time on the edges of the boundaries. There is a great deal of want for that. Uh, you see this particularly with newer writers, with inexperienced writers, with writers who are uncomfortable really developing their story because they, they, keep wanted, they keep wanting to tell you that there are like 10 rules to how this culture operates. And I'm going to test rule number 10. Uh, okay, sure. I mean, you, you can. There's nothing wrong with that. But the, those 10 rules of how this thing operates were there so the story could exist within them. If you are just telling me this thing so that you can push against it, I didn't need all the other rules and all this setup. You could just challenge me on one thing. You want to make sure that once you establish the boundaries, you get them out of the way. 
because you don't want the reader thinking about boundary or boundary crossing so much as you want them thinking about the story. Does that make sense? Boundaries are tricky, both metaphorically, figuratively, emotionally, psychosocially, etc. But boundaries are really, really important. I'm going to get another mouthful of tea, and then we're going to talk about the next component. We are done with the six primary ingredients, and whether we are talking about gothic horror, romantic horror, slasher, zombie, whatever, we need these six ingredients. And you can walk through any film, any book, anything, and make a list. Break down how it affects, how it deals with time, how it deals with boundaries, how it deals with tension, how it deals with expectation. You can list and find the scenes, the moments, the paragraphs, the exposition beats, the whatevers, the pieces of story that deal with each one of these six ingredients. Sometimes in a part of a story will have multiple ingredients. That's totally fine. But you should be able to take these six ingredients and use them to dissect any horror story. Whether we're talking Jaws, Frankenstein, or... Uh, those trashy things that came out in like the early 2000s where everybody had like leather pants, you know, whatever kind of schlock all the way to whatever kind of classic, you can use these six ingredients to organize and dissect. They're super useful. And I want to add more tools to your toolbox in a second. But first, I got to put more liquid in my face. So if you have questions, this would be an awesome time to ask them. Ready? We are now going to take a look at if tension and expectation were our primary engine, setup and payoff are our supporting engine. They're the, I don't, I, I've drawn a blank. They're not the warp core. They're the sublight engines for our starship. They're important. They're the impulse engines. That's the word I'm looking for. They're important, but they're not the main driver, but they're there in support all the same. Setups and payoffs. Now, these are conceptually two separate things that we are going to often put next to each other or space apart, but they will always exist in pairs. There will always be setups and there will always be payoffs. When we neglect a payoff, there better be a reason for it, even if that reason is, oh, I forgot, John, sorry. But there better be a reason. But these things always operate in pairs. And the reason they operate in pairs is because they close loops. They go together. It, if we're going to set something up, we have to pay it off. Otherwise, it's just kind of dangling there. And no, just so we're clear, if you set something up, and then you take that lazy writer way out of like, oh, you have to read the second book for more. Uh, that's shitty. Don't do that. Do better than that. Don't force someone to get a book just to get a fill-in detail about a secondary point that they're going to forget in the time until the second book comes out. Don't, don't dangle things like that. That's, that's shitty writing. Do better. Setups and payoffs. Here we go. A setup is... Any scene, scene, we're talking scene now, any scene that creates an element that could or can and will be or should resolved later in the story. 
in that scene, there's developed elements that get brought up, that get introduced. A setup is about introduction. A setup is about establishing something. A setup is about making do with something and adding to it so that it can be paid off later. Setups are how plots start. Setups are how, are how plots are maintained. Setups are fuel to an ongoing fire. For instance, here are some setups. Setups could be something like uh, one person goes missing, then another person goes missing. Or, and then a third person goes missing. Each one of those things could be by itself its own setup, or it could be part of the collective setup of people disappear in town. We could also just say that the first disappearance is the setup for people disappearing in town. There's no one right way to frame it as long as you understand that the disappearance of people is the setup to something that will be paid off, which will probably be the reveal that the people were eaten by the monster. You're going to have a lot of setups. You're going to set up how a character acts, how a character reacts, how the monster exists, how the monster operates. You're going to set up how the killer kills. You're going to set up the conditions for the killing. You're going to set up the sky and the weather and the time and the season and the traffic and, you know, what creepy dresses your creepy twins are going to wear. You're going to set damn near everything up, no matter what kind of scene it is. Dialogue scenes set up relationship. Investigation scenes further the mystery and set up the idea that we still need more information. Emotional scenes set up how a character feels. Setups really matter. And you should, should now be able to take a look at all the scenes you have, no matter the genre, and figure out if they're setups. What is this scene setting up? Okay, the scene where the kid learns the crane kick, he's setting up the idea that he's going to have to use the crane kick. The setup where uh, the guy learns that he has to become a musketeer is setting up the idea that he's going to go travel across France and join the musketeers. The setup that uh, there are never more than 12 guards on Narkina 5 set up the idea that when the prison riot happens, the prisoners vastly outnumber the guards. Setups matter establishing a setup is developing a scene that makes it clear that you're doing something in that scene so if we're if we're setting up a relationship between two characters and we've elected to do so in a dialogue scene we're going to make sure that the dialogue between character number one and character number two gives the reader enough material that they can understand okay this is how one and two feel about each other this is how one and two are no matter who they are, no matter what they look like. But it also includes who they are, what they look like, what they do, etc. Because we're just trying to establish stuff. We're setting stuff up. Now, sometimes we're going to set stuff up and there isn't going to be a functional payoff. For instance, if I set up the weather, there isn't really a payoff to weather. Because if it's a bright, sunny day or it's just the middle of a, a warm streak in the, in the late spring, we don't really necessarily, like a rainstorm isn't the payoff to that. It could be if we're dealing with a drought or something, but we could just set up some stuff so that the story can pay it off by existing under those conditions. It is not always a cause and effect relationship, which is where a lot of writers get real pissy 
They get real cranky about it because I'm talking about how every setup needs some kind of payoff, but it doesn't always mean there's a direct cause to affect A to B relationship. There's just, I'm setting this up because I need it because the payoff is the story. You know, we're setting up it's football season, period. The payoff does not mean we're going to follow football games. It just means that that gives us a context for our time of year. Our setup that we have two kids doesn't mean our two kids are going to be part of the B plot. It just means that don't be surprised when two kids show up in the early part of the story. Setups matter. You are going to spend a lot of time on setups. It is reasonable to feel like all you're doing is forever setting things up and that you are setting things up a disproportionate amount relative to how you are paying them off. I get it, but I guarantee you, you're not. You are doing roughly the same amount of things. So let's talk about payoffs. Payoffs are any scene where an element that you've previously set up gets a resolution. Our setup of establishing that ghosts can't cross running water. Our payoff is in our chase away, you know, as our hero flees the ghost, they cross the river and they realize the ghost can't follow. Uh, a payoff is our priest having their lack of faith suddenly regaining their faith to overcome the demon. Uh, our our payoff of get the shark to swallow the explodey canister pays off with the canister exploding when the when um, Hooper not Hooper when uh, Brody shoots it. You're going to have payoffs of all different kinds. You can have payoffs in dialogue scenes. Payoff in dialogue scenes are are more talking, more characters are making conclusions or statements. You're going to have payoffs in action scenes where stuff happens. You're going to have payoffs in emotional scenes where characters figure out how they feel. You're going to have payoffs in uh, investigation scenes where all of a sudden they discover a clue. Oh, I only need one amulet to say the magic words to banish the evil spirit or whatever. You will have payoffs. When you fail to pay things off, when they are clearly in need of resolution and you deny that resolution, that disconnect never never sits well with a reader i don't care how nice you are to them i don't care how much detail you give them if you don't pay stuff off there is a feeling of like uh unease let's call it just this kind of uh, tension that needs to be dealt with you're just left them hanging don't leave them hanging pay things off now, that said, you can pay things off effectively or ineffectively. An effective payoff is where the resolution matches more or less or even exceeds more or less the setup. If, if you scale too big, obviously, it feels disproportionate and it feels like the setup was underwhelming. If we have too small a payoff, it seems like we wasted all this time. If we set up that, oh, man, the monster has like 15 powers and can do this, that, and the other, and all of a sudden they're defeated by like someone throwing cold cuts at them, all that setup seems unnecessary because the payoff was so, re- so simple in comparison. You want to try and have some level of proportionality between these two things. Relatively. It doesn't have to be one-to-one exactly. It's not like they took three steps in setup, so i got to have three parts in payoff. doesn't need to be equal. It just needs to be more or less in the ballpark, okay? 
And for a lot of that planning, for a lot of that thinking, it just comes down to how you organize. Payoffs are the, the big problems with payoffs. If you're looking for red flags with payoffs, one, they happen way too quickly. People race to them because they think that's the more satisfying element. And it's not. In horror especially, the most satisfying element is the build to the payoff. The payoff is good. Don't get me wrong. It's great when the kids gang up and defeat the sewer clown. It's fantastic when they suddenly reveal the evil like puppet creature that's been impersonating all their friends. It's great when we realize who the killer at the party is. I should watch that movie tonight. Um, it, it's great to have that. But it's the buildup that creates more satisfaction because it's that manipulation of tension and expectation and progressing the story along. It's a accumulation of many things, whereas a payoff is usually just one single thing. Aha, I know who the killer is versus I wonder who the killer is. Ooh, it's not that person. They're dead now. Ooh, it's not that person. They're dead now too. That build is always going to be greater than the payoff value-wise. The payoff is important because we needed to close the loop. We needed to wrap things up, move things along. But the viewer or the reader didn't only come for the payoff. They came for the build too. Don't neglect that. This is why organizing the story, outlining, making notes, scene note cards, structure bullet lists, something. It doesn't always have to look like everybody else's. It just has to be something. The more organization you can do, the more you can kind of like map everything out, the easier it's going to be to figure out your setups and your payoffs to build and shape your story the way you want. Payoffs that are rushed, payoffs that seem disproportionate relative to their amount of setup aren't as satisfying because they seem like we're either missing something or we've got too much in the way and it's cluttered. The other problem with payoffs is that they are too delayed relative to their setup. Now, some writers will claim that, oh, well, I'm just rewarding a reader for paying attention. And yeah, I guess that's the case. I guess that's true. But at the same time, you, you, how, how long are you going to keep them on the hook waiting? You know, if we always have a problem that, you know, the devil is on this elevator with three other coworkers, um, how long are we going to go until we finally go, oh, that's the devil, you guys? The longer we wait without increasing tension, without affecting stakes, without adding to our setup, the longer we coast without pedaling our bicycle, remember that was the analogy from earlier, the longer we go without pedaling, the more precarious and less satisfying that payoff is. We're not working so hard anymore. It's just kind of, oh yeah, I guess, the, I guess that guy was Satan. Weird. And then we move on with our day. Setups and payoffs come together. And we don't want to spread them out too thin because it's going to feel disconnected. That doesn't mean we have to have, you know, scene 31 as a setup, scene 32 as a payoff. We can space it out a little. But if we space it out too far, like we set up in scene two and we don't pay it off till scene 90, it's possible that we will have forgotten what happened in scene two. It just happens. There's only so much room we can hold in our brains for movies and stuff, right? Don't space it out too far is what I'm saying. Questions so far? Because I've got two more things to talk about and then we'll get out of here. Any questions, anybody? Are we good? 
Yes? No? I'm going to just kind of assume somebody somewhere is nodding at the screen. Shall we move on to the next part? And get one more mouthful of tea. That's really good. All right. Let's go tackle another major element in horror. The climax. Oh, boy, howdy. People love a good climax. They love a horror climax. The killer being found, the killer stalking the last victim, the monster invading the house, the the most big bad thing happening. The climax is the moment of highest tension, expectation, risk, stakes, and for horror especially, the greatest potential reward, but also the greatest potential failure. If you fuck it up, character in the story, things are going to go extra mega bad because we're confronting the sewer clown. It's it's the worst or the best or the somethingeth. People love horror climaxes generally because from a from a film perspective, this is where we throw our budget. This is where we really put our weight to make it a big deal because we've paid off or we are in the middle of an, in a climax paying off all the setup. This is where we finally, you know, confront the killer and, you know, get away with our lives and stab the serial killer monster in the face with a coat hanger. This is this is a climax. Horror climaxes tend to be singular. Meaning there is one protracted climax. Now that might occur in a scene or it might be a scene in one room then they change locations which is still the same scene. Uh, you know, we start off in a, a fight in one room. We wrestle. The, we, uh, the heroine gets away, and then the killer chases her. And then they fight in the bedroom, and then she gets up on the roof, and then, then we, have, we, we wrap it up on the roof. Like, that's all the climax, because it all falls under the umbrella of the killer tries to kill the heroine. The number of location changes does not make it a separate climax. Somebody asked me that um, after the chat yesterday. If you haven't heard that chat, by the way, it's on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Adamus. Feel free to go catch up on all the chats you missed. But um, if you change locations in a climax, it does not reset the climax. It's just a continuation in a different place. Horror climaxes are the big deal because generally a climax wraps up as many things as possible and leaves very little kind of dangling or unanswered, at least in terms of the critical stuff. The climax is where the telekinetic girl finally, you know, sticks it to all the people who made fun of her, including her mom, who said they were all going to laugh at her. The climax is, you know, the fight between the, the forces of good and the forces of evil. The climax is the confrontation with the monster and ultimately defeating them. You drive the reader to the climax, you drive the reader there as much as possible, as frequently as possible, to the best of your ability. You don't cut away if you can help it. You don't suddenly, you know, tag out. Okay, all right, I'm, I'm done talking about the climax. Let's go back and talk randomly about the secondary character. Once you're in, you're in until it's done. If that means you need to restructure things, if that means you need to kind of trim some stuff down to set it up better, go ahead. Horror climaxes work because they're not interrupted. Changing locations isn't an interruption. Ch an interruption would be, you know, hey, the killer's chasing the heroine, and all of a sudden we cut to 
I don't know, the neighbor making s'mores because there was a s'mores set up earlier and we're using this as levity. And this is one of those cases where levity is deflating our tension. What I would recommend you do if you are unsure as to your horror story and how it's going, write the climax first. Write it, get it down. Even though it's disconnected from story, even though it doesn't have any of the supporting architecture yet, other than whatever's in your imagination, get the climax down, at least in loose first draft form, so you know how to build the story up to it or around it. Because this is supposed to be the biggest, tallest point of the roller coaster. The most criticalist thing, get it down first. That's super helpful for a lot of people, but not necessarily a universal answer. And that's fine. It's okay that it's not a universal one-size-fits-all solution for people. But I'm telling you, in the cases where you don't write the climax down, at least have it in your head what it should or could kind of sort of be so you can at least steer the story in this direction. If, for some reason, and I know somebody out there is probably thinking it, well, what do I do if I have multiple characters? Should I have multiple climaxes? <sighs> okay, first of all, I hope my sigh communicates sufficiently what exactly I think of this idea. But, okay, let's just hear you out for a minute. Yes, if you have, for some reason crafted multiple protagonists who are completely disengaged from one another yet are somehow still somewhat simultaneously handling their own climaxes that have independently nothing to do with each other sure yes have multiple climaxes go ahead at the very least please have them connect to each other in some way shape or form otherwise it seems like you've got three or two, five, ten, however many partial stories that just coincidentally happen to be moving at the same pace. Organize your stuff better, and this will be less of a problem. But if you have multiple characters and multiple locations, try to bring each one to a natural breaking point where it makes sense to pause here, like have the the killer and the girl, like have the girl get away and run off into the, you know, run up the stairs and there's a natural breaking point where we can suddenly jump over to what's happening in the garage. Break at a natural point and switch to the sun, switch to whatever else it is because you've given yourself that space. You would not naturally and effectively in the middle of that struggle between protagonist and antagonist while they're busy wrestling away the, you know, trying not to stab each other in the face or whatever, you wouldn't cut in the middle of the action because that'll, that'll weaken the action. That'll make the scene seem jarring. Find your natural breakpoints if for some reason you have an overcomplicated climax. Because I'm sure somebody somewhere does. But that's how you would handle it. Okay. What's next? Other than I get a mouthful of tea, we go to closure. Mouthful of tea first, though. We're almost done. Closure also called resolution, is where this, a new status quo is established. This is generally because the climax has been handled. The conflict, the major central problem, the monster has been defeated, the killer has been shot, stopped, arrested, killed, captured, whatever. The killer ran off into the night. Freddy Krueger has been defeated, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. We burned the monster with gasoline. Uh, the aliens left 
whatever. The new status quo should demonstrate to us that the lives of the presumably surviving characters are changed. The degree of change is going to speak to the effect of the climax. It's a payoff to the story's setup. If you want to demonstrate that the effect of fighting the vampire has been super mega badass, you turn your shy kid into a vampire killer. If you want to talk about how fighting the devil in an office supply store was a really, really big deal, then you show the, the cashier who fought Satan, uh, you show them not at an off, you show them not at an office depot job. The new status quo should provide every surviving or dead character, because that's still closure. Hey, you're dead. You're just you're just not in the story. That counts. But it provides every character some kind of resolution. Resolution is not always assumed to be positive. It's not always assumed to be happily ever after. It's just the ever after. It can be happily. It could be sadly. It could just be whatever. But but that matters. That's a thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think that makes sense. The, the point is you want to pass everything through the status quo. You want to say, okay, so we've done this. We've done this and this and this. We've gone through all these things. Now what? And then you set up the new now what? That's how we do it. You need closure. Without closure, it's not satisfying. Without closure, it's hanging. And that does not create anticipation for book two. It gives a sense of wasted time, might be the best way to put it. A sense that it, it just doesn't matter. Hey, you spent 300 pages and I didn't really wrap anything up. Thanks. That's a, that's a pretty shitty way to treat people. So instead, make sure there is some kind of closure. Good guys don't always have to win, but they do have to do something. And at least their efforts need to be given some weight by having something happen. Make sense? Those are the sort of the basic tools. I don't know why I clicked that. Those are the basic tools of horror. That's enough in a toolbox to have you take a look at loads of different things for loads of different reasons. You can use that skill set for writing horror, for dissecting horror, for developing a draft, for writing any kind of horror. Those are the tools you need. Any questions? Else we will get out of here and we are done for the night. No questions? It's okay. There was a lot of information. Let's get out of here. I, again, don't have an ender. Um, let's just use yesterday's ender again, shall we?
Thank you so much, everybody, for being here tonight, for letting me talk about horror and walking through the ingredients, setups and payoffs, climaxes and closures, and all the bits in between. If you liked this and you want to see more breakdowns and walkthroughs for different genres, uh, first of all, tell me. I'm never going to know unless you say something. The best thing you can do to tell me is, and, and you want to support more stuff like this, go over to Patreon, patreon.com slash John Helps You Write Better. For two bucks a month, you get a ton of detail just like this on a weekly basis, plus loads more. If you want personalized help with whatever it is you're writing, making, or doing, head over to johnhelpsyourwritebetter.com, and I would be happy to spend half an hour, an hour, however long, working with you individually, getting done whatever it is you want to get done. I want to thank you so much for being here. Thanks for your time and your patience and your care. Thanks for watching. Thanks for clicking and listening and all that good stuff. Please don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow. Click the bell for notifications and do all the usual social media, youtube streaming stuff. It really does make a difference, and it really does mean the world to me. I will talk to you guys. Ooh, I will talk to you guys next week for more. I'll talk to you soon. I love you so much. Be safe. Be good. See ya.